History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. you spooktacular people welcome to this 262nd episode of the history ghost bump podcast ghost tours for the theater of the mind i am your host diane on this episode we're going to be returning to a location that we've done on a previous episode this would have been episode 55 and we featured charleston's old city jail this episode is a return to that old city jail plus it's a little bit of a road trip show as well as we share some of the things we checked out while we were in Charleston a couple of weekends ago. What's going to be a little bit different about this episode than the previous one on the Old City Jail is that now I have been inside of the building and experienced it for myself and gotten to see it for myself. So I have a lot more personal things to share and a little bit of audio from it. As I listened, I didn't pick up any EVPs, and for me, I didn't have any personal experiences in there, but some of the people who were with us did feel a little peculiar inside the jail. Before we get into talking about some of the sites that we saw in Charleston and the Old City Jail, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Nikita, Caitlin with a C, Mark, Jennifer, Lydia, Ruth, and James. And now, this moment, Naughty. The moment naughty was suggested by Anthony Ortiz. The government is so unimaginative when it comes to explaining away unidentified objects or other unidentified aerial occurrences. They always claim that it was a weather balloon. This is what took place with the Battle of Los Angeles. What do you mean you haven't heard of any Battle of Los Angeles? And no, I'm not referring to a movie. When this battle took place, the United States had just recently entered World War II because of the attack on Pearl Harbor by the Japanese. On February 24, 1942, a rumored enemy attack and subsequent anti-aircraft artillery barrage over Los Angeles, California took place. Apparently, when all was said and done, it would seem that America's barrage against the enemy attack was really just a false alarm. At least, that was according to Secretary of the Navy Frank Knox. Newspapers of the time published a number of reports and speculations of a cover-up. A later investigation by the United States Coast Artillery Association in 1949 claimed that a meteorological balloon was sent up at 1 a.m. and that started all the shooting. And the report concluded that once the firing started, imagination created all kinds of targets in the sky and everyone joined in. In 1983, the U.S. Office of Air Force History attributed the event to a case of war nerves triggered by a lost weather balloon and exacerbated by stray flares and shell bursts from adjoining batteries. Really? If this is really the case, that a little old weather balloon convinced the government that we were under attack by Japanese forces, that certainly would be odd. And a lot of BS, if you ask me. (laughs) 
creepy makes history more delicious. And now, this month in history. June, on the 1st in 1980, CNN launched in Atlanta as the first 24-hour television news station. The network signed on at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time from its headquarters in Atlanta, Georgia, with a lead story about the attempted assassination of civil rights leader Vernon Jordan. The three major networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC, would break into regular programming for major news stories, and they hosted nightly 30-minute broadcasts. The idea of running 24-hour news was foreign. CNN broke the news mold. Many doubters called CNN the chicken noodle network because it lost money, but it eventually got very popular for breaking news and for covering live events around the world as they happened. CNN usually beat the major networks to the punch. The channel was initially available in less than 2 million U.S. homes, but today it is watched in more than 89 million American households and over 160 million homes internationally. Charleston is one of my favorite cities. There's so much history here, and building after building has a story. This road trip had a group of us touring several parts of the city, from cemeteries to restaurants to forts to historic mansions to the old city jail. On this episode, I'm going to review the places we saw, the tours we took, and some of the ghost stories that permeate the very essence of this city. I could easily believe that Charleston is one of the most haunted cities in America. Join me as I return to Charleston, and more specifically, return to the Old City Jail. And this time, I take you inside with me. So as a part of this road trip, it was myself and my folks driving up from Central Florida. And we met in Charleston, Dina Marie of the Twisted Philly podcast. So she came down from Philly. A listener named Deb came up from Georgia, and Maggie and her husband Joe came over from Kentucky. I just really had a great time hanging out with everybody and uh, checking out a lot of the different sites that I'm going to share with you here. This was Maggie's brainchild. What happened is we were in Louisville, and we had toured Mammoth Caves, and we were riding back from the caves on the bus and discussing the fact that we'd heard during the live show from Mike Brown of the Pleasing Terrors podcast that the Old City Jail was going to be closing down the tours and that they would no longer be available after June because the building had been bought by some people who wanted to develop it into offices and they were going to gut the jail so the things that were there that were original probably would no longer be there anymore. And I have to say, I haven't been in the jail before, so I don't know how much stuff was in there previous to this, but it felt to me like a lot of things had already been removed. It was just a lot of big open rooms. There weren't a whole lot of jail cells or anything like that. Now, I don't know, maybe that's the way it has been for quite some time, but it was really cool to get to go in there. And so thank you to Maggie for suggesting, hey, we need to do a road trip and get in there before we can't get inside that place anymore. So we all got in on Friday and we all met up together at Justine's Kitchen for dinner. This is a little hole in the wall and Dina had suggested it and it was awesome. Had excellent food, 
just absolutely loved it. So thank you to Dina for suggesting it. It It's just a wonderful time getting to sit and visit with everybody. And then we had booked a ghost tour with Pleasing Terrors. For those of you who listen to the Pleasing Terrors podcast, you may or may not be aware that Mike actually started by doing ghost tours and he basically brought that now to podcasting as well. After the live show that I did in Louisville with Mike and also Jerry of Hillbilly Horror Stories, Mike was driving home to Charleston and got in a horrible accident and his car was totaled. And at the time he told us all, he just had a few cuts and bruises and had managed to walk away okay. Well, he had a lot of pain in his shoulder area and it just was not going away. So he went to a doctor and found out that he'd broken his collarbone and he'd broken it so bad that he had to have surgery for it. And what I've heard is that he had to have some hardware put in as well. So he has been down and out for the count. And when I heard about it, I went, oh, man, I hope he's going to be able to do our tour. Well, unfortunately, he was not able to. But he did have his good friend, Mike, who helps him out with the tours do it. And he was amazing. So we really enjoyed uh, Mike filling in for Mike. And so I let Mike Brown know that he was a good replacement for him. We would have preferred to have Mike, but the other Mike was good as well. So Friday evening, we met up in Washington Square Park to go on the ghost tour. We hit many of the haunted locations in the historic area near Charleston Harbor. And for those of you who are executive producers of the show, you know that I've been doing a theme basically on Charleston. The last bonus cast was about haunted Charleston Harbor. And I'm already planning on the next Stones and Bones is going to be about Magnolia Cemetery in Charleston. So a lot of inspiration coming out of Charleston for me over the past week and a half. And then next month, I'm planning on doing a video on Fort Sumner. So we've got all kinds of good stuff coming out of Charleston. The first building we were told about was on the corner and known as the Fireproof Building because it was the first building in the U.S. to claim to be fireproof. The reason it could do this was because it was not made from any flammable material. Unfortunately, its claim to fame proved to be untrue when it did catch fire in 1861 and a large portion of the interior was burned. The good news is none of the important documents that were inside the building got burnt. So it did at least protect the stuff that was put in there because they thought, hey, it'll be safe in the fireproof building. But as we found through all of the historical things that we've looked at, whenever something claims to be fireproof, that just doesn't seem to be the case. It's kind of like the Titanic claiming to be unsinkable. You just really should not tempt fate by saying you're something like unsinkable, fireproof. Just don't tempt fate. This building was built between 1822 and 1827. The architect was Robert Mills. He also designed the Washington Monument. And to go down a little rabbit hole here, hello? Hello? Yes, I'm down here in the rabbit hole and I've brought you with me. Mills was the first native-born professional architect in the U.S. And he was a keen advocate of using fireproof materials in buildings. So that's what inspired the fireproof building here. Many think he moved towards fireproof materials starting in 1812 when he designed Virginia's Monumental Church on a site where 72 people had died in a theater fire the year before. So it's almost like he picked this spot where a bunch of people died and he built a fireproof building on top of it, I don't know, to make up for the fact that those people had died. The style of the fireproof building is neoclassical. County records were stored here since it was the most fireproof building in the city, as I mentioned. Today, the building houses the headquarters of the South Carolina Historical Society. Our guide, Mike, had worked in that building for years and told of many experiences he had, as well as those of his co-workers. And based on the stories that he shared, I would say this is one of the most haunted buildings in the city. 
just based on the personal stuff that he has experienced, whether it was somebody touching him, pulling on his clothes, throwing papers up in the air, all kinds of stuff was going on there. And they couldn't figure out why are there so many hauntings here? I mean, it's isn't a building that's seen a lot of violence or people dying in it. So why would we have all of this activity in this building? Well, after doing some deep research, Mike was able to find out that autopsies were conducted down in the basement. And they believe that is why there are hauntings here. People have seen spirits gazing out of windows at them. Apparitions have been seen walking around on the property. Lights turn on and off by themselves all of the time. One of the other places that we visited was the Circular Congressional Church and its churchyard. And our group had actually gone there before we met up for the ghost tour. And I did a live video from inside the churchyard and shared that with the HGB Losers Club. Just another reason why you want to be over there for some of those live videos that we do. The original church was built in 1806 by the Independent Church of Charlestown, which was organized as far back as 1681 in the city. The earthquake of 1886 brought it down. In 1891, it was replaced with the Romanesque revival structure that is here now. It's a very unique looking building. It's called the Circular Congressional Church because it is built in a circular fashion. All of the different outer walls of the church are circular. The churchyard here is the oldest in the city and had some very unique symbolism on the headstones, including a really creepy looking woman that I ran into. She was wearing a bonnet. I'm sure she was supposed to look like a sweet colonist or something, but she had these like bugged out eyes and it was not a very good artistic rendition of a female. She just looked creepy as hell. Some of the tombstones here also were really, really tall. I'd never seen such tall tombstones in my life. They were almost as tall as we were. We visited some other churchyards as well. I believe there were two others on this tour. One, I think, was outside of St. Philip's Episcopal Church. Don't quote me on that. But it was in that churchyard that somebody managed to capture a picture of what looks like a ghost kneeling at a grave. And people believe that it was the mother of the child that was buried there. I think she was buried with her baby that they both had died in childbirth or something. And so she kneels beside the grave here now. And the picture was... I don't know. I I always question when I'm not the one taking the picture and witnessing everything that happened with it, but it looked pretty real to me. We also stopped outside the infamous Unitarian Universalist churchyard. This is the one that is outside of the gate that you guys would have heard Mike Brown talking about on a previous episode when we featured, I believe it was Haunted Cemeteries number one. And Mike talked about the ghost of Annabelle Lee that would rise from her grave in search of her long lost love, Edgar Perry who was otherwise known as Edgar Poe. So I encourage you to go back and listen to Haunted Cemeteries 1 if you have not to get the full story behind that haunting. And Mike also regales us on that episode with tales of people on his tour passing out in front of that gate. They don't know what causes it. Usually it's people who seem to be a little bit more sensitive to the paranormal and they'll just be standing at the gate and some of them will just, bam, fall flat on the pavement, completely passed out. Other people will just start to feel like they're going to pass out, and so they will walk away, go across the street, have to get away from that area. Maggie managed to capture a real weird light anomaly in a live picture that she shared in the Spooktacular crew 
and she took the picture through the gate and she took two of them simultaneously. And that's why we noticed that there was something weird because she came over and said, look at this. Does this look kind of weird to you? And at first, you're just looking at a, a regular picture with the regular lighting. And then the next picture, all of a sudden, it almost seems like there's this burst of light. We were going back and forth, back and forth looking at them. And I'm like, it does look like there's like a white burst of light and it it's like it's rising up. I don't know that anybody knows for sure the exact location of where Annabelle Lee is buried, but I know for people who have tried to go back and look over all of the documentation and think they might know where the grave is, it seems like this light anomaly was originating from that back corner area that is said to be where her grave is. So I don't know what Maggie captured, but it definitely struck me as kind of weird. Nobody on our tour had any issues in front of the gate, both I took a picture of my mom and Maggie both standing there looking through it and taking pictures and stuff. So nobody seemed to have any problems there. Definitely a wonderful tour. I highly recommend it. This was the second time that I've been on the Pleasing Terrors tour and I've enjoyed it both times. And it's just full of wonderful history and great ghost stories. The next day, my folks and I headed out to Fort Sumter and it was the first time I'd ever gone there. Really enjoyed hanging out there. I'm going to put together a video for the executive producers so that you can see what it's like on the inside and learn a little bit about the history there and and some of the hauntings that are going on there as well. The best part about going over there is you take a ferry and in Charleston Harbor are the most dolphins I've ever seen in my life. When we went the first time, I couldn't believe that there were dolphins in there. And then I couldn't believe how many we saw. I'm like, I've been in Hawaii and gone on a dolphin cruise and seen like three dorsal fin surface and then go back down and never saw anything else again. And because we saw those three dorsal fins, they didn't give us our money back because, hey, well, you did see some dolphins and we promised you'd see some dolphins. The last time I was in Charleston and this time when I was in Charleston, tons and tons of dolphins out there in Charleston Harbor just jumping through the waves and surfacing and it was just a lot of fun watching them. We got back to the mainland and we met up with Maggie and her husband Joe and Dina of Twisted Philly at Pugin's Porch and I've eaten here before. Loved the food. It has the best shrimp and grits I've ever had in my life. The she crab soup is amazing. You have to have it. This was on the ghost tour as well because it is haunted. We got to go eat at a haunted restaurant, right? And it's got excellent food. So we all met up in there. And this is actually a location that's been declared the most haunted in Charleston on the Travel Channel. And I think it wasn't just in Charleston. I think they said in America, if I'm correct. So Pukin's Porch is located at 72 Queen Street. And it has the most amazing biscuits too. I love bread. Oh, God, I could eat those biscuits all day. And they have this honey butter that goes with them. If they would have brought me over a little thing of honey, I really would have thought I was dead and gone to heaven. The first thing that you notice is that this clearly was somebody's home at one time. The restaurant is named for Pugin the dog, who has his grave to the right of the walkway when you enter the yard of the restaurant. So make sure you look for it. It's very visible. It's very cool. He was a neighborhood dog who liked to hang out around the porch. Thus, we have Pugin's porch. This home had belonged to Zoe St. Armand and her sister Emily. They were school teachers who lived quietly with their cat. Emily and the cat died and Zoe became very lonely. She would spend her time on the second floor balcony waving to passersby. Zoe eventually died too and it's believed that her spirit remains in the house. People have seen her apparition sitting on the balcony and waving. One couple saw her inside an upper story window pounding on it as if she wanted to get out. They called the police who found everything in order and nobody inside. Another story is about a newly engaged couple 
who decided to celebrate at the restaurant. The young woman went to the restroom, and as she washed her hands, she glanced up into the mirror and saw an old woman in a long black dress and worn sweater standing behind her. She freaked out because no one was in the restroom when she exited the stall, and she heard no one come in. She ran out of the bathroom, past her fiancé, out the front door, and into the yard where she cried hysterically. She would not come back into the restaurant, and I mean, they offered to give her a complimentary meal, too, and she was, I'm not going in. She never returned. She was so scared. Many of the staff claim that experiences can be a bit angry, as though Zoe is unhappy to have all these people in her home, and who could blame her? I mean, I know she was lonely, probably would have liked a little bit of company, but when you got a ton of people in your house, I can imagine you get a little upset. We had no experiences while we were there, and we even went into the restroom and used it, see if anything happened, and no such luck. When I go places, I try to squeeze in as much as I can possibly get done in the time that I have. This comes down from my parents as well, so it's not surprising that we decided after lunch and before we were going to go over to the Old City Jail that we wanted to squeeze in visiting a couple of the historic mansions that are in the city. There are a ton of them. You can go and tour almost all of them, so it's hard to pick and choose. Which ones are we going to go see? So the two that we picked were the Calhoun Mansion and the Nathaniel Russell House. Now, the Calhoun Mansion, not only is it huge, I mean, it's like 24,000 square feet, but it is just gorgeous inside and out. And what really went after my little odd heart was the fact that this home is basically a museum of oddities. The current owner who actually lives in the house and leaves it open for the tours, which would be kind of weird to me, but he has been collecting weird and unique items since he was a teenager. And so this is an amazing home to behold just to see the unique stuff that he has. And it is expensive stuff, too. I just absolutely fell in love with the stuff that was in here. If you get a chance to go there, make sure you look at every single chandelier that is in this house. They are all unique. They have stories. Just gorgeous. Loved it. The other wonderful thing about this mansion is that it is Victorian styled and it was built in 1876. But before we went to the Calhoun Mansion, we did the Nathaniel Russell House. And this was built in 1808 by the King of the Yankees, Nathaniel Russell. He was a merchant in Charleston who came from Rhode Island, and I'm not exactly sure why they called him the King of the Yankees, but they did. This home reminded me of the Sorrel Wheat House in Savannah, particularly because it had oval-shaped rooms with the same kind of curved wooden doors. The really unique thing about this house is right there in the center of the home, this central staircase, it is a marvel to behold. It's free-flying and spirals up three floors completely unsupported. There are no nails in the stairs either. It is put together with these wooden pegs. Now, they don't let people go up and down that staircase anymore because they are afraid that it will not hold people anymore because of the settling that the house has done and because it just is that old. So you use the servant's stairs to go up and down the house. I've been to, oh gosh, I can't remember the place in New Mexico. I'm sure everybody's going to start yelling at me, but it has the miracle staircase in it where the guy came in and built the staircase for him because they had no way to get up to the choir loft in this really tiny little church. There's no way that they could build stairs to go up there because it would have taken up half the church. And so this man comes out of nowhere who they think was an angel or actually the father of Jesus, Joseph the carpenter, and he built this spiral staircase that goes up to the top. And then I think later on another man came along and built the banister to go with it. And it 
it's just a, a marvel of engineering. They don't know how it was made, but it ha- it just has like no central way to hold it. It's free flying like this one. So uh, just amazing. And what I really loved about this house too, that some of the trim was not real, but looked painted kind of 3D. So you thought it was trim, but it wasn't really trim. And just as the Sorrel Weed House was built from bricks made on plantations by slaves, so was this house. And it was that uh, same kind of gray brick that they made on the plantations. So then we headed over to our prime location, the main reason we were on this trip, and that was Charleston's Old City Jail. Now, I've been outside of it once before. Denise and I visited, took lots of pictures. It's a really, really cool building because it looks like a medieval castle. It's smaller than you would think it would be for the fact that it was basically the city's jail, but just a really cool design. And as we know, some of these jails were designed in this castle-like way to kind of make the prisoners feel like they were going into this big, large place and it was supposed to be kind of domineering to them and I guess keep them in line. But the people they put in here, a lot of them were some of the worst of the worst criminals in the city. Randy was our guide with Bulldog Tours. I just want to play a little bit of him when we're first getting ready to go in, talking a little bit about how the tours usually go here. If you get freaked out for whatever reason, and it happens constantly, every night somebody has to be escorted out of here, just come up to me and say, Randy, can you get me out now? And I will get you to the nearest exit. I prefer you let me show you out rather than you wander off by yourself. As we all know, that's violating the first rule of horror movies. Don't ever leave the group. And that's how horror movies start, right? Somebody wanders off. And I do have to shut this thing down at night by myself. And I don't want to worry about turning a corner and seeing you. <laughs> that would do it for me. And um, But things do mess with us here. Uh, there are guys who, who work with the same company I do who will not come here, will not do these tours under any circumstances. In other words, you're doing something they won't, they're too chicken to do. And if anything messes with you, be prepared. I have no guarantee over, I have no control over it. If I did, I'd be a billionaire. But if they decide they take a fancy to you, they will mess with you. They will touch you, stroke the back of your head, they'll tug on you, they'll bear hug you, they will whisper in your ear, which I have found over the past few years really freaks people out. The audio experiences are definitely the most disturbing. I had to escort a man my age out last week when I asked him why. He said, Randy, when you were talking, I heard something come up and whisper in my ear, why are you here? And that was it. And and things do happen to people. I took someone in last summer, a young lady, and as soon as we walked in, her eyes rolled up in her head. She raised her arms and started speaking in a strange voice, gibberish. Scared everybody. And we had to escort her out. And that raises another interesting point. If you're not careful, sometimes you may go home with more than you can. And I need to point out as well that before we got there and while we were on the tour, it was thunderstorming. So you couldn't have picked a better time to go inside a creepy old haunted jail than during a raging thunderstorm. The jail hasn't changed much since it opened in 1802. The biggest change is that it had a fourth floor, which was destroyed in the earthquake that I mentioned earlier that happened in 1886. So the roof line was brought down to the third floor. The fourth floor was mainly used for pregnant women in the jail to give birth. 
The other change was that there had been a 20-foot-high wall all around the jail yard, and today it stands only about four feet. That one also collapsed during the earthquake, and I guess they decided not to really build it back up. Everything inside is original. The staircase was brought over from England in 1802 and is very ornate. The granite stairs came from New England, and that was from 1802 as well. Men, women, and children all shared the jail. The youngest child that was here was a 10-year-old named Alonzo Small. He was convicted of first-degree murder and thrown into the third floor, and there was no record of him leaving. So nobody knows for sure if he just grew up in the jail and stayed there for forever, or if he died inside the jail. There were many jailbreaks because the jail was made of tabby, which was easy to dig through. And this is basically just kind of a cement oyster shell kind of mix. On the second and third floor are two huge rooms. The rooms were full of iron cages to house the criminals at one time. There was only a couple of these cages still left in a room there on the second floor. The third floor was death row. And this was a room that had iron inside the walls because, as I said, they were digging their way out through the tabby. So they said, hey, we'll put a stop to this. We'll go ahead and put iron up on the walls and on the ceiling. And it was really good at keeping them from getting out. But it made that third floor so hot that people would die of heat stroke up there. They would pull the condemned criminal from the third floor and bring them down to the gallows and hang them right there in the yard. And it wasn't just hardcore criminals that were housed here. Petty thieves and other lesser infractions like helping a fugitive slave could get a person thrown into the city jail. The warden lived in an apartment in the jail with his children. He was the only person holding down the jail after lockdown. He could look out his window and see down the hall to make sure nothing was out of order. One of the wardens who lived there, and I believe he lived there for 25 years, raised nine children inside the jail. The first room we entered had a rope pulley system known as the Crane of Pain. And this rope pulley system was right there in the middle of the room. And it was used for implementing torture, which usually consisted of whipping someone with a cat of nine tails. And for those of you who know anything about those, you know there was little bits of metal or glass on the ends of these cat of nine tails. And so it would rip the skin off the back of whoever was being punished. And then they would throw brine on the prisoner to protect against infection. So I can only imagine how wonderful that felt on your raw skin. Most people could not survive being whipped as much as they might have been sentenced. So if it seemed that somebody was maybe going to die before they could get the whipping done, they'd say, oh, let's quit for a little while. Throw them over to the side for a couple days. Oh, they look like they're getting better. Bring them back over. Let's whip them some more. And they would just do this until the person finally got all of the whippings that they were supposed to get. Most people could survive four months in the jail. That was about the average. Anybody staying after that would probably die from disease or violence. It could be a guard beating up a prisoner or it could be the prisoners being violent with each other. But the biggest killer in the jail was yellow fever. And here Randy shares a little bit about what yellow fever was like, what the prisoners looked like who had this. And I wanted to share his description with you because I'd really never heard yellow fever described before. I guess I never really thought about it. But what a horrifying disease, if you got it. Yellow fever, I cannot emphasize how horrible yellow fever was. You would, your, your liver fails. You turn yellow, your eyes turn yellow. You look creepy, you look terrifying to the people around you. And you start to get weird blue streaks on your neck. You have a fever and you start hemorrhaging, you bleed from your eyes, your ears, 
you hemorrhage in your lungs, you cough up blood, and at the end you go into these spasms, and most of the time that meant you were gone, you were, you were dead in short order. And that was when they would whisk you off and throw you into stacks of bodies they were either going to throw into trench graves or burn. Well, sometimes people woke up, and when you study the history of yellow fever, that is one of the places where people in the 19th century developed this deep fear of being buried alive. Because there were many occasions when people would get thrown in these stacks and wake up screaming to be pulled out of the stacks, and no one wanting to touch them because they thought they would get the disease if they did. Horrible thing. There was a huge morgue downstairs, and they were trying to get rid of the bodies quickly because they thought the victims were spreading the disease rather than the mosquitoes. And this was a place where the windows were all open, and it's the south. The mosquitoes were just prevalent, and there was nothing to keep them out, so people were getting bitten like crazy. There were some who believed that bad swamp gas, known as miasma, caused the disease, and soldiers would sometimes go out to the swamps with cannons and fire off into what they thought was the miasma, hoping to dissipate it. Now, they might have killed some mosquitoes with those cannonballs, but they really didn't do anything about yellow fever, because obviously miasma had nothing to do with it. Probably stunk, but that was about it. Guards would have to be careful when they entered the main cell areas, They would look through peepholes to make sure nobody was out, and then they would stick their head through a small window in the bars to make sure that no one was hiding, waiting to jump them. Just a really dangerous place to be. During the Civil War, the Old City Jail hit peak occupancy because the Confederate Army turned it into a POW camp. George Todd was a doctor brought in to care for the Union POWs. So people would think, hey, that's pretty nice of the Confederates bringing in a doctor for their Union prisoners. (laughs) except for this guy was nuts and he did weird experiments on the prisoners he was so crazy the confederate guards even feared him this george todd would inject things in their skin and tie them in weird positions he would amputate limbs that didn't need to be removed he was convicted of war crimes after the war and if that last name todd sounds familiar to you Well, yep, he was the brother of Mary Todd, so the brother-in-law of Abraham Lincoln. Great family member to have, eh? William Marcus was a man who was thrown in here after he stabbed his wife to death on a beach on Sullivan's Island. He reached over and grabbed the fist of a man in the cell next to him and beat him to death with his own fist. That's how nuts that guy was. When the guards hauled him out to hang him, he headbutted one of the guards so hard, he killed him. There were many dangerous people here in the jail, including the Fishers. Now, we talked about Lavinia Fisher in the previous Old City Jail episode. If you listen to the Pleasing Terrors podcast, you've heard about Lavinia Fisher as well. There are different versions of her story. In most stories, she is considered to be America's first female serial killer. She was kept in a corner cell on the second floor of the jail, and she shared that cell with her husband, John. Both have been convicted of multiple murders and sentenced to hang. Lavinia Fisher was born in 1793, and she was said to be one of the most beautiful women in Charleston. She married John, and the two ran a hotel in Charleston named Six Mile Wayfarer House, because it was six miles outside of town. It was a popular place for men to stay at while traveling. Lavinia would bring the men staying at the hotel some hot tea that was laced with oleander leaves. She'd sit and chat with them while they sipped the tea. She would then escort them to a room that she and John used for travelers that they had decided to murder and rob. They would stab the men, and John would bury the bodies in a pit. Things changed for Lavinia and John when John Peoples came to stay. He chatted with Lavinia for quite a while, giving her far too many details about his life. He didn't like tea, so he'd left it untouched. And when Lavinia left the room, he dumped it out. She returned and told John they had a vacant room. After getting inside his room, John had a weird feeling. 
Lavinia's husband had stared at him all night in an unsettling way as he chatted up Lavinia. He also felt he had shared too much and perhaps he might be robbed. He decided to sleep in a chair by the door rather than the bed. Good thing, because in the middle of the night he was awakened by a loud noise. He was shocked to see the bed disappearing into a hole. John jumped out the window and rode his horse to the police reporting what had happened. Lavinia and her husband were arrested. When the police searched the hotel, they found Charleston's murder castle, basically. There were secret passages and mechanisms that opened floorboards. A sleeping herb was found, and police believe these herbs were used to put victims to sleep. The remains of a 100 people were found in the basement, along with belongings of many people who were not the Fishers. John and Lavinia were tried and sentenced to hang, but they were given a chance to repeal. They were kept inside the old jail for a year. As they waited, they hatched a plan to escape. They made a rope from linens, and John shimmied down first. The rope broke. Lavinia was stuck in her cell. He couldn't leave without her, so he kept sitting outside trying to figure out something else he could do, and he just, he would not leave, and finally Lavinia screamed at him, get out of here, John, do not stay here. Well, he wasn't real bright, or he was really in love with Lavinia, because he didn't go very far. He stayed very close, and he was discovered very quickly and brought back to the jail. Now, when they were on trial, Lavinia tells the judge, judge, you can't hang me on a gallow. I am a married woman, and that's against the law. So the judge looked at her and said, oh, I've thought about that. That's why John's going to hang before you. So then you will no longer be a married woman and we can hang you. They were hung on the gallows behind the jail on February 18th, 1820. John went quietly, but not Lavinia. She ranted and raved and refused to walk to the gallows. So she was carried. She wore a white dress and hoped that she could convince a man to marry her after John was hanged. No man took her up on the offer to marry. Her last words were, If you have a message you want to send to hell, give it to me. I'll carry it. She flung herself off the gallows and hit the crowd who were stunned by the awful sneer that spread across her dying visage. Historians have never found any evidence that a hundred bodies were found in their house, and only two bodies were actually discovered. And many believe that the Fishers were part of a group that merely robbed people. Lavinia Fisher was reportedly buried in the potter's field next to the jail, And instead of heading off to hell, she seemed to have decided to stay at the old jail in the afterlife. Right after she was hung, residents claimed they saw Lavinia's face behind the bars of the cell she once occupied. Lavinia's apparition is seen inside the jail wearing a wedding dress. She's very angry and a vengeful spirit. She scratches many visitors with three fingernails and usually goes after men. And the Bulldog Tours does have quite a few pictures on their website featuring those scratches. The jail closed in 1939 because conditions were considered cruel and unusual punishment under the Constitution, so the government ordered it shut down. The prison sat empty for 60 years until a local architectural school bought it in 2000 and turned it into a college campus. They put electricity into it for the first time, and they left about two years ago because they needed a bigger campus. Bulldog Tours has been running tours there. Those will be ending soon, as I said, as the jail is gutted and made into an office building. Some of these people are going to have their desks in rooms where spirits abound. There's reportedly the ghost of a little girl that has been seen. Children were housed here, so she clearly died here at some point. A black man in ragged clothes has been witnessed wandering the cell blocks. A heavy iron door fell off its hinges. A cop was investigating an alarm in 2006, and when he arrived, he found the back door open. He drew his gun and went inside, climbing the spiral staircase. When he got to the third floor... He said he felt as though his arms were wrapped in plastic wrap. Some of the other experiences that people have had are sunglasses getting knocked off of faces, visitors and guides getting choked or feeling like they can't breathe. There's been a lot of violent pushing and shoving of visitors. 
And there's a wheelchair that still sits in the jail dating back to the 1820s, and it never accumulates dust and often shows signs of recent use. Sometimes it's been known to bump into people during tours as well. Visitors, tour guides, and folks who've worked at the jail have reported foul odors, feeling ill and short of breath, choked. Another thing that happened is a set of keys disappeared during a guided tour and then mysteriously reappeared in an envelope stuffed through the mail slot later. Some people wonder if it was one of the spirits inside that had done that. During a renovation in 2000, some workers said they saw the apparition of a jailer with a rifle on the third floor. He passed through bars, then vanished. And in 2006, people who were on the 10 o'clock tour heard the sounds of a dumbwaiter that doesn't work anymore moving from floor to floor. And for those of you who listen to the Pleasing Terrors podcast, you know that Mike Brown spent an overnight in the jail. He did capture a really weird picture on the staircase, which is lit by a red bulb, so it looks creepy as hell anyway. And he definitely felt like something was there with him. It was a, a slightly creepy night for him. And I believe it was a thunderstorm that night, too. Well, Mike returned, and he returned with two other people who were listeners to his show, and they said they wanted to go inside a room in the jail with a Ouija board and see what happened. This room has been called the Creepy Door Room, and the Ouija board they used is one that Mike has bought and he uses as a decoration in his office. But on the night that they did their little Ouija board session, it wasn't being used as a decoration. And I encourage you to check out episode 32 of the Pleasing Terrors podcast where Mike tells you what happened. Now, our guide, Randy, had joined the group in that room. I want to play a little bit of audio from our tour where Randy's going to talk about not only the overnight that Mike did on his own, but also about what happened with this Ouija board in this room. Mike Brown, if you look, when we came down the stairs to the left, there's that open room there. Okay, there's a cot in there. And supposedly he slept there, but if you ask him, he didn't sleep very well. No. And, and I, um, I was here that night when Mike, Mike is a podcaster. He's also an excellent tour guide. He leads a tour out of uh, Washington Park. But Mike got this idea. He wanted to spend the night on, Fisher, on the anniversary of Lavinia Fisher's hanging on February 18th. And he spent the night here and some things happened to him. But there's a more recent story about Mike. Yes, he came in with a Ouija board. He came what in with, I was here that, that night. Was that you? That was me. My fiance who gives tours and runs most of the investigations, she said she only she said she was so funny when Mike proposed the Ouija board. She said, not only no, hell no. Yeah. And I said, no, come on, we'll do it. So we went down there. In fact, I'll show you as we walked down, I'll show you the room where we did the Ouija board. It was strange. There were first there were two people at the board. And one of them, it was a young couple, and his name was James, and her name was uh, Madison. Okay. And uh, they, they studied up. They know how to use the Ouija board. Mike's standing there filming, and we're doing the Ouija board. And James says, are, "Is there anybody in here?" Yes. And then he says, "Well, are you alone?" No. And then um, it says, it spells out "free," like, "Can you free me?" And James made the mistake of saying, "No, I can't free you. You'll have to do that yourself." And you can tell, you can feel the room change temperament. I mean, the room just switched, and it got very mean and aggressive. And James said, let's end it. So we ended it, and we walked out, we got some air, came back in, did it again. And this time, his wife let it. They didn't like that. And it said no. It kept saying no, and she would talk. And finally, it spelled out J. 
A-N-E-S. We want to talk to James. And then he got all, you could see him start to sweat. And then it started going through the alphabet backwards, which oh, according to Luigi is not good. It means they're trying to get out. And so we ended it. And then this is the weirdest part of all, not less than a week later, um, Mike Brown's involved in a very serious acts. We were in Louisville with him. You were there in Louisville? Yeah. He'd gone to Waverly uh, for just to see it, right? At Waverly? Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah anyway. How long have you known Mike? About a year and a half. So yeah. we, we podcast as well. And spend oh, time with Meta, and all right. Well, I have to give you my card before it's all over. This place is the gift that keeps on giving. I mean, just when you think it can't do anything different to you, it, something else happens. There is so much activity in here. And what I've done is I've just learned to ground myself and come in. And so far, they've been nice to me. They, don't, they haven't been mean to me. They haven't tried to frighten me. They've appeared to me a couple of times. I saw Animal once, just as if he was there. I didn't run away. And as I walked by him, he looked up at me and smiled. This really weird smile like this. Like that. Ugh. Anyway, and I, but I've learned to just let them be. This is their home. There's something clearly inside this room. We went in there and got some weird pictures. Maggie said she felt uncomfortable in there. And then as a little side note, as I told you, Mike got into that really bad accident on his way back home to Charleston from the live tour. Well, the Ouija board that they used in this room he brought to the live show in Louisville after they had used it in the Old City Jail. It is the creepiest board I've ever seen with what looks like little devils carved on it. I wouldn't go anywhere near the thing. We had it up on a little easel at the front while Mike was doing his talk, and I'm like, I am not touching that thing. I'm not even getting close to it. And then Mike had the accident. Coincidence? I don't know. Mike likes to point out, hey, he, shouldn't have, he should have been killed in the accident, so he didn't die. So maybe it was protecting him. I don't know. Did it cause the accident? Did it protect him? Or does it have nothing to do with the board at all? I guess that's for you to decide. And that's the case with the city of Charleston. With all of these historic buildings that have ghost stories to go with them. Whether it's some of the mansions there, some of the restaurants, or the old city jail. Are these locations haunted? That is for you to decide. Charleston is definitely a city that you want to visit. Just a great place. Love to have you guys check out the website at historyghostbump.com. And if you would like to send me some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. Did hear from Anthony. Allow me to introduce myself. My name is Anthony, and I'm one of your newest spectacular persons. I work in a warehouse in Las Vegas, so whatever I can do to keep my mind off the work or heat helps a heap. It's been roughly a year since I've gotten into the whole podcast scene. I tend to follow my four favorite subjects, history, horror, the 80s, and my beloved 49ers. One day, I just happened to stumble upon your podcast while in search of the Boogeyman. And from the first episode I was hooked, I've just reached the Asylum 49 episode. I can't tell you ladies enough on how much I've enjoyed the podcast. So many of the previous on-air comments have taken the words right out of my mouth when describing how good the show is. Since the age of 12, I've had encounters of my own from hearing voices, seeing apparitions, experiencing paralysis, shadow people, etc. And mind you, I've had witnesses. I try to debunk before I assume, but I've even heard that you're more likely to experience something when you're open-minded. Wonder if it carries on down, because my wife and two-year-old daughter have also seen them. Maybe I can share a tale or two, and I did tell them I'd love to have those for the Halloween special. And if you guys have some experiences, doesn't have to just be in a historical location, let me know. I'm starting to pile those up for our Halloween special this October. Thank you so much, Anthony, for writing. 
Marie wrote us and said, I just wanted to say thanks for your radio show. I worked in Manhattanville during the late 1980s in the library and noticed the elevators would go to the wrong floor when I pushed the buttons. Also, Reed Hall was beautiful and very busy. I worked at the front desk for a lady named Dorothy. Thank you for sharing that. Sounds like some more of our haunted elevators. We love them. I'm getting ready to go on another trip. I just feel like I've been going from one place to the next to the next. It's been a crazy year so far. Next week, I will be in Alton, Illinois, attending the Haunted America Conference. Really looking forward to it. There's some great speakers there. They still have tickets available, so I would love to have you join me there. Let me know if you're coming. We're going to do lunch at the Lent Mansion on Friday afternoon, so I can get you on a reservation for that. And uh, I was going to try to do a ghost tour on Thursday night, but they don't have any ghost tours on Thursday evenings in St. Louis. It's a huge city. It's the summer. And yep, only do ghost tours on Friday and Saturday nights. Love to have you guys join me if you're going to be in that vicinity. And uh, I think we're going to do dinner on Thursday night as well. So let me know if you're going to be there. Have some Apple podcast reviews to share. The first is from Kassan12047, mix of history and spookiness, four stars. This is a great mix of the history of a place and any reported paranormal activity. The presentation is more objective than scary with a bit of warm and fuzzy. It's not designed to give you nightmares. Keep up the great work. Well, thank you. And it's so funny when you hear some people say it's not very creepy or spooky. And then we hear from other people that it was so creepy they can't sleep at night. So I don't know if it's particular episodes that get people or if it's just however you handle your creepiness. War at Them in Love, five stars. I stumbled across this podcast and immediately fell in love. Perfect mix of history and haunted. Love all the interesting facts they provide, especially about cemeteries. I look forward to each new episode. Thanks. Well, if you like cemeteries that don't necessarily have hauntings, we have our Stones and Bones episodes that are bonus. And I just love putting those together. Been having a lot of fun with that. RT20 Push, love, five stars. I've been an avid listener for over a year. This is by far my favorite podcast. I love that there's history mixed with paranormal. Great job, Diane. Thank you very much for that. Appreciate it. I want to thank all of you for listening to this episode. I have been your host, Diane. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We'd like to welcome into the cemetery Molly Smith, and she is going to be getting a marble headstone. Thanks. Fan of the show? Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast catcher. We would greatly appreciate your review at iTunes as well to help the show grow. Thank you.